This is Annabelle Steele, and you're listening to the Hayseed Scholar from Professor Brent Steele. You may call him Doctor, I just call him Dad. Here's my Uncle Kyle to introduce the show. Recording in studios from Utah to the UK and anywhere in between, you never know where Professor Brent Jameson Steele will be dropping knowledge and bringing you the best guests the universe has to offer. This is the Hayseed Scholar with Mr. Worldwide, my brother, Dr. Brent Jameson Steele. I like that one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hayseed Scholar Podcast. I'm Brent Steele. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you're all doing well and your midsummer, or for those in the Southern Hemisphere, midwinter is going okay. You're taking care of yourselves and you're hanging in there. This is an interview I did with Dr. Tony Hastrup of the University of Sterling. She's also the editor-in-chief of the very prestigious Journal of Common Market Studies. And I got to sit down and chat with her um, at the end of June, which was very enjoyable, and I felt very fortunate to do so because I know how incredibly busy uh, Dr. Hastrup is with many with all of her responsibilities and research and work. So Dr. Hastrup was born in Aberdeen, Scotland, but as she notes, she moved very quickly, her and her family, to Nigeria uh, before she was uh, one year old. So she talks about primary and then secondary school in Nigeria, and there's a really a, um, important uh, and, and poignant discussion uh, that we have uh, that she discloses regarding the decisions that she had to make early on about what particular language training and choices she had uh, in those schools. And then her family's moved to California during the last part of her high school years. So she finished up high school in California. And then she went to community college at Las Positas in California. And then got her bachelor's degree in international relations with a minor in political science at UC Davis, also in California. She talks about moving then uh, to go to the University of Cape Town in South Africa for her master's, in part because of the 2004 election here in the United States. Um, And then she reflects on her time thereafter at the University of Edinburgh, pursuing a PhD while also working three jobs. It was a very busy time uh, for her. She spent some time at the University of Warwick. After that, uh, she mentions the kind of dynamic environment that she was in there where she developed uh, two of her fantastic book projects. One, her a Paul Grave monograph that was eventually published in 2013, Charting Transformation Through Security, Contemporary EU and Africa Relations. And the second one was a 2014 edited volume that she did that was in the Paul Grave IPE series. It was titled Regionalizing Global Crises, the Financial Crisis and New Frontiers in Regional Governance. We then... Uh, move on to chat about how she ended up at the University of Kent and then her move to the University of Sterling where she is currently a senior lecturer in international politics. We then shift gears a little bit, chat about her approach to writing, how she balances work and life and recharges a little bit. And then her 
many public engagements, many, many public engagements, uh, and the work that she's done in fostering the Women Also Know Stuff network, uh, which is a fantastic network which promotes the expertise of women in political science. It runs about an hour and 45 minutes. I had such a great time chatting with Dr. Hastrup, and she's just really a, a, an amazing individual, uh, and, and we're so fortunate to have her um, in the academy, and I was uh, very fortunate to be able to chat with her during such a busy time. So this is Dr. Tony Hastrup of the University of Sterling on the Hayseed Scholar Podcast. Cheers. So, Dr. Tony Hastrup, welcome to the Hayseed Scholar Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, we're so happy to to have you here. Um, I'm very uh, excited to to have you here. Um, so, uh, first off, uh, tell us um, uh, where it all started. Uh, I believe you grew up in Nigeria. Is that right? Although I know you're particular about saying you didn't necessarily grow up in Nigeria. Uh, you kind of grew up a little bit later, but um, but I know Nigeria is where, where it all started, right? So Yeah, I guess actually, you know, I have more of a problem of the with the, you know, the idea of growing up and what that means. You know, I like to sort of think of myself as still growing, so to speak. And interestingly enough, you know, I've sort of ended up back where it all started because I was actually born in Aberdeen in Scotland but then um, I, um, I'm Nigerian my family is Nigerian and I sort of moved back home and I lived uh, in Nigeria until ab about uh, 16 when uh, my family uh, moved to the US so my primary school was you know a small um, Anglican church school and you know a government state school for my secondary school so in that sense I feel very you know, a big part of me is not just that I'm Nigerian in terms of, you know, uh, a nationality, but very Nigerian in a sense. But at the same time, I think a lot of who I am now in terms of, you know, the work that I do, some of the beliefs that I have, I really came into that um, post, leave, you know, leaving Nigeria and being influenced by some of the other different places that um, I've lived. So, yeah, I like think I'm still growing. <laughs> and I did part of that in the first 16 years of that in Nigeria and a whole bunch of other not 16 years outside of Nigeria. Where, so um, how old were you when you moved from uh, Aberdeen to uh, to Nigeria? You... I, I wasn't one yet. Yes. So, okay. you know, I was, I was a few months, I think. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a memory of then, but um, mm. it was certainly before my, before I was 11 months old, that much I know because, um, yeah, I was one of those babies who was walking by the time I was t 10 months old. Wow. And I've seen, I've seen footage of myself walking at 11 months and it was in Nigeria. So definitely before then. Um, and so yeah. all the memories uh, early on were, were from Nigeria. Um, uh, did did you? Um, so you said that primary school was was Anglican, and then secondary school was uh, state or government. So is that kind of like like the public schools? Like is that the comp that we'd have? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I mean, you know, in, in case that wasn't clear, in 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 Nigeria, it's one of those things where you you have to kind of pick a religion, really. 
uh, non-belief is not really a thing, at least not something that people talk about. In any case, my family, um, you know, I sort of grew up Anglican. My family is nominally so, not like church growth or anything like that, but, you know, nominally so. And really, you become nominally so because you want to get your kid into good school as well. So the, you know, the Anglican a primary school in similar to the ones you have here in the UK um, demand a sort of close not super close but some sort of affiliation and you know it was the church school linked to I think a church my mom must have gone to when she was a child and uh, other some other family members not again uh, keeping in mind that, of course, I attended this church school with people who were Muslims as well. Like that did not have any bearing. Like your actual religion didn't have any bearing on it, but it was just, you know, it was a good school to go to, um, at least uh, from um, my parents' perspective. And if you know anything about a Nigerian educational system, you know, the military really screwed that that over it certainly wasn't what it was supposed to be um, after in after independence but to when i went to um secondary school which i went to so it's a bit different from the us where you've got sort of junior high and then you know high school or whatever because technically i went to secondary school when i was 10 right i went to so like in hindsight i was a baby <laughs> But that was, but that was pretty standard. That's the age people went to secondary school, and I went to this um, what we would call a, a federal government college, and it was an all girls federal government college, uh, one of the oldest, I think, if not the oldest, uh, Queens College, um, and it was a good, you know, it was a good state school, and by state, like you know, in Nigeria, we've got sort of. Um, you know, states as in uh, regional states, uh, but we've also sort of got, you know, the state, the government, the federal government. So this was a federal government uh, state school. And it was the kind of, it was public in the sense that it's not a private school, so not as expensive as a private school, but it was the good um, government uh, school. And so it was, it was an interesting experience um in a way it was a very normal experience you know it's the experience that my parents before me had had was the experience that a lot of my um cohort was having uh so basically i went to boarding school at 10 um and if i was the one who was making that choice would i do it again probably not but it made sense right like it, it meant that my parents didn't have to deal with traffic in the morning of trying to get kids to school, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but I think importantly, it was just the thing that was kind of done, so to speak. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't anything different from what other people would have experienced, really. Were, were you a good student uh, when you were, when you, no. in those days? <laughs> no. No, no, not at all. Um, so I was, I was, um, I wasn't a bad student, right? So, but I was very middling, right? So there were things that I liked. Like I liked literature, I liked social studies. Um, I hated the sciences, but I really liked agriculture, which most people didn't really understand why, because it was a science. So, so I you, you had the option of taking, for example, either agriculture or 
doing a class on like food and nutrition, which is kind of home ec, but for cooking. And I absolutely detest cooking. Like, why? Um, so I fell in love with agriculture. I really loved it. Um, I loved English literature. As I said, social studies, hated math. Um, I, you know, obviously literature was a bit distinguished from English and of course liked English. Um, then you had to do what we call the languages, right? So there was French, which was okay. Like I wasn't great at it, but I was actually much better than I was at it than I was at math for sure. Um, and then you had what we call first language and second language. So my first language is sort of the language of, you could say my people, you know, the language that we, I also spoke at home, which is Yoruba. Um, and so that's quite, you know, it's quite easy um, in a way, but it also wasn't easy because you see the problem of um, colonial education is that indigenous languages are not valued, which is why you have the title of first language, which is like white. Um, so I, I mean, I grew up bilingual, but I could speak and I could understand and I can speak and I can understand, but we have accents on our words in the Yoruba language, which I'm still quite confused by. I understand the logic of the accent. So it goes by, you know, the musical Doremi, right? And that's how you uh, distinguish the accent. So, you know, even now I still have to sound out words if I want to put the accents in the right places. But because really sounding out the words and putting accents and things just takes so much time for me, I used to just not bother. But of course, that meant that you could have a word that had like five different meanings because without the accent, you can't really distinguish it. So my um, my Yoruba teacher wasn't always well pleased with me, even though I actually quite liked the class and I quite liked him. Um, and he was just like, oh my God, um, why, why do you never listen to anything um, we'll teach you? And then my second language, you have the option of either doing Igbo, uh, or Hausa, and uh, I chose Hausa because uh, there's a part of my family that came from the northern region, uh, and I thought, oh, this would be an interesting uh, language to learn, although actually some of my closest friends were in the Igbo class, so half of the time I was like, why did I even decide to do this anyway? Um, and I can't say that I actually remember anything from those classes, but they were quite good Although, again, being grown up now, I do find it frustrating because Yoruba, Igbo, and Hausa are defined by being like the three large groupings in Nigeria. But then we have over 250 languages and such groupings that are very distinct. And people who've come from those other um, groupings and ethnic groups, um, you know, they didn't have the privilege of doing their language as, as first language. But again, I, I sort of put it down to the inheritance of having been colonized and um, what that's meant for the organization of the state, but also being, you know, now I find it very uh, problematic um, because it also means that even not only are these people not allowed or we're not given the opportunity to sort of um, have themselves represented in the curriculum. I, as somebody who does come from one of the dominant groups, I don't know all of those other groupings at all. Like, you know, so, you know, um, 
I was I, I was doing sort of a, an interview a few weeks ago and I was speaking to somebody who um, is from the north and you know we are kind of it's kind of hardwired that you know if somebody's from the north you kind of just assume that they're house which is not true like at all and I was speaking to this person and we we're having such a great time and you know it's like oh, this can be awkward for me to ask you like you know where where are you from like because I know from what you've said so far, you've made it very clear that you're not what I would assume, but like, you know, where are you from? And, you know, once you tell me, I'm getting to sound super ignorant. But actually we had a, ended up having a really good chat and it made me, we, we had a good chat, we had fun. But when I got off that call, I was actually really annoyed <laughs> at the education system in Nigeria, which I guess wouldn't surprise most people. So. Was, um, so, so, <laughs> Obviously, politics is intertwined with even the the, the issue of languages, right? Uh, I mean, it, we all know that it's it's it, it's it's so too obvious to even state right now. But even back then, did you know that? Were you thinking about that? And then were you thinking about politics? Like, was politics something that you were all chatting about at all uh, when you were in boarding school, or was it just one of those things where you sequestered it as well? This is just you know decisions about language or. Yeah, I think mm, I think now those things, you know, the stuff about language, I, I sort of see as as politics now. But growing up, yes, I did think about politics, although I probably didn't think of it as politics back then. So, you know, I always say to people, one of my earliest memories, um, and I don't think I made this up, is um, going to um, sort of anti-apartheid uh, sort of protest. Because my, uh, you know, my parents were obviously involved in that and they were involved in history. But that was also part of uh, growing up, I guess, in a t specific type of household. Like, you know, my grandfather was an ambassador, one of the first ambassadors that Nigeria had after in independence, right? So when we did visit him, even though I didn't really understand what it was that they were talking about, there was always sort of that element of um, politics there. And my mom, I grew up during the time of a military dictatorship. Uh, I grew up at a time where people I know were assassinated for political reasons. Um, I grew up at a time when my mother was a journalist um, for what I guess would be the equivalent of BBC, which was effectively a state broadcast station. And so, you know, I was at home with the frustrations of not being able to cover a story or being able to cover a story in a very specific way. And, you know, what does that mean um, for your family to make your family safe and all of that? I was growing up at a time when, you know, the first democratic election in a very long time was then annulled. And when the winner died, uh, and he died um, because of um, the military dictator who then, you know, disappeared after a while and someone worse came after him i was in boarding school and alive when that horrible person died and i'm not ashamed to say i'm still very proud to say i have no problem saying it that we danced that day um like the literal dancing on someone's grave um and i think actually we should do more of that none of that um you know don't speak ill of the dead. He was a horrible, horrible person, a horrible human being. And the impact of what they did, we're still feeling today. I mean, they're not the only ones. Um, so there you go. So in a way, I think politics has always been inter 
you know, entwined with life. In although we don't perhaps not we don't always think of it as politics. When I was in secondary school, I wanted to be a lawyer like my grandfather. I wanted to be an international lawyer, and that really made him happy. I don't, you know, it was it was very strange because uh, my parents. <laughs> were not lawyers. You know, my mom was, as I said, as I said, a broadcast journalist. My dad had also done mass communications and he was working for a company in sort of government affairs. Uh, so don't really, you know, that whole lawyer thing, uh, consistent with a lot of sort of Nigerian narratives of what success is. Uh, you know, you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, an accountant. Uh, I mean, it's, I don't think it's particularly Nigerian. I think, you know, you have that as a very middle class weird middle class dream but i wanted to be a lawyer because my grandfather was a lawyer and i thought he was cool and um but i also thought it would be really cool if you were like a doctor but you didn't have to do medicine because i i i think i still don't remember who it was um but i think one of my parents friends was a doctor but not a medical doctor and i just thought they were really cool <laughs> so i knew about this thing but i didn't know about academia like i didn't know any of those things even though my parents had professor friends I'm like I don't what are they professing I don't know what that is um so I really wanted to be a lawyer uh but that all changed when I went to college um for practical reasons but also for passion reasons um but yeah I would say politics is everywhere which is why even till today when someone tells me that they're not really into politics uh, it's an instinctive reaction to just roll my eyes. Like I'm like, what? What are you? Who are you? What does that even mean? Um, yeah. Yeah, I I kind of have the same uh, <laughs> same reaction as well. Um, so so it does sound like going to college was um, not even a, a you know not even a question. It was you were definitely going to go to college. Were you then thinking about? I'm wondering how you went from there to uh, to getting to uh, California, where you ended up um, uh, do, doing uh, starting and then continuing quite a bit of your college. Um, but uh, but how did how how did that happen? Like how did the decision making process happen? Were were you thinking of colleges? Uh, uh, a little bit closer to home, or was it always? Oh no, I'm 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 gonna go elsewhere. Um, how did you get from from point A to 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 that point? Well, I mean, so I was always going to go to university. My parents um, went to university. Uh, I think culturally, we sort of see university as as the way out. You know, I think you know my parents. I grew up in a household that was very professional oriented, as I said, because of the sort of jobs my parents had. But we were not, we did not have material wealth in any way, shape or form, right? So that's why I went to, you know, uh, <laughs> I went to public school because we couldn't afford anything else. And, you know, even then it wasn't always as easy um, to, to manage through. And, you know, I have two other siblings. so. Um, I, I would say, you know, I, I grew up in a very comfortable household, but in a very um, middle, middle class orientation of, you know, what life uh, should be. Uh, certainly, you know, my parents are super proud of me for being a doctor, like, and, you know, they tell anyone who would listen, but 
back then it wasn't it wouldn't have been an expectation um i think it would have been would have been considered appropriate if i'd gone to university in nigeria and then taken the bar there uh, as a lot of uh, our my family friends did so that would have been normalized but what happened in my uh, when i was sort of 15 was the company my dad was working for uh, was going to transfer him to california and it was an american company and uh they were happy for his family to go along um and so you know this was an had you had you been to the had you been, i'm sorry to, uh dr <laughs> had you had you been to california before had you been to the united states before yet no okay okay i'm sorry nope. go ahead Nope, never been to the US. I've been to the UK before, right? And yeah, so that was the other thing like that. If if there was a time when I was that my parents were thinking I was going to travel, which keep in mind, this would not have really been my decision. I don't have money. What do I know? So even if my parents were kind of like, okay, you're getting to that, you're almost done with high school now. Um, what is the next step? A lot of it would have been their decision anyway. And I think if we didn't move to the US, the if I wasn't going to university in, in Nigeria, the only decision that I would have made at that point is to do my A levels in say the UK. Because I, you know, both my um my dad's sister, my mom's sister, my dad's brother back then, they lived here in the UK. Um, and it would have made sense for my parents to sort of send me off and then I stay with the family member doing my A levels or something like that um so you know that might have been a possibility although i mean i don't think we really had the opportunity to explore that because of you know what happened and i'd never been to the u.s of course knew a lot about the u.s um when my dad when i was a much younger so when i was perhaps around between the time i was three and five or six my dad worked for the uh, united states information service um which is the information service of united states information agency and the best way to describe it is i sort of think of it as like the us's version of british council which is i mean i should be able to describe it on its own terms but like that's all i know about it um so yes i knew something about the united states uh you know i we watch films from the united states uh, we knew what American accents were. We watched lots of soap operas. Um, like, you know, my grand is still really into Murder, She Wrote, and so am I. Uh, and, you know, we watched, um, I had family members who watched The Bold and the Beautiful. This is a bit embarrassing. I'm not going to tell you who they were, but, you know. My point is, <laughs> we knew we knew a bit about the U.S., but like, not never never visited. Like, we visited for the first time when we all went together, and so I actually did my last year of high school in the U.S. Um, in a in a private high school because it was supposed to be the best, uh, but it was also like a religious sort of. Um, Christian high school, um, which is fine because again, coming from Nigeria, you kind of have to have one religion or the other, right? And I like to think I was a very good girl. So I had no qualms being in, in that school at all. And is part of this 
I now I think of it as this part of this interesting history. But it's a bit difficult to join a year in their final year, like um, and not even like on the first day of term. Cause I think we started in like October or something. Um, so that was really interesting. The only kind of black students there were the kids of people who worked for either my dad's company or companies like my dad. Um, and these kids were like stinking rich, like super, super rich, which was not us because we're only there <laughs> because our parents are working for this company. Um, so that was a kind of adjustment, I would say. Um, but I think, you know, I took it in my stride because, you know, the one thing I would say my parents instilled in us is, you know, you should hold your head high wherever you are. Um, and, you know, if you're not doing anything illegal or that would embarrass your parents and you have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. So I think, you know, for that reason, it was fine. But I wouldn't say it was easy going into a, a school where, you know, a lot of my classmates, they started in this school scenario from um you know nursery or like pre you know pre pre-k really you know they went to the nursery they went to the kindergarten they went to the uh yeah so that was that was a life for a lot of uh, my classmates and I, I i did manage to make a few friends um there uh but it was just one year and a year after that i um I went to community college because when you're an international student in the US, the fees are exorbitant. I mean, is I was an international student my entire sort of university career up until PhD. And I was lucky that, you know, by that time, my parents definitely were able to help a bit, at least with tuition. But I'm really proud and really happy that I did start off in community college because it was sort of in a way, it was kind of this in-between place where I could be, you know, growing up again, post being 16. Uh, it wasn't the sort of shock of being shoved on some like massive university campus. But at the same time, you know, um, for the first time, I think I was interested in academic stuff. And then I was a good student. You know, I was in the honor society and everything. Shocking, I know, if you consider my history. In primary school, I was really, that was the thing. I don't know what happened in secondary school because in primary school, I was really good. Like, you know, I had one of the highest entrance exam marks uh, that the sort of standardized exams that you take to get into secondary school. Um, I had, I think, I believe the second highest marks in my class. Uh, but then I just really hated secondary school um, and I just could not be asked um, and then that kind of changed going into college and part of why I think that happened was because I did have that experience of uh, community college uh, which then made going to Davis even better. What um what years uh, when you were finishing up high school um what year would that have been? So, well, graduate high school in 2000, uh, so started community college in the fall of 2000. 2000, uh, and then, um, and, and where in, in California, was it uh, where the community college was or right around the same uh, area of California? Because uh, I know the community college is in Dublin, right? Las, Las, yeah. Is it? Yeah, yeah, that's where I went. 
Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, I went to Las Positas in uh, in Livermore. So obviously, Las Positas had um, there was the Shabo College, which was closer to Hayward, and then Las Positas was kind of actually a lot of few people from my high school um, ended up going there, especially people who weren't really sure yet what it was that they wanted to do. Um, So. In a way, for that reason, it was a nice kind of adjustment as well um, that I could still see actually people I knew from secondary school, but then meeting other newer people in a kind of university setting. And I loved my teachers a lot. Um, uh, but even then, I, you know, it was in applying to community college where it was like, okay, now you have to think about college is when I discovered, oh yeah, in the US, you can't just be a lawyer. You can't just do like an undergraduate degree in law. It has to be something pre-law. So what were my options? Um, but you could st- still take some sort of law classes and I was really good with business law. So actually at last positions, I, I still genuinely thought I was gonna do this law thing, but I needed to really scramble and decide, you know, what was my pre-law going to be? And that's how I, you know, applied for um, political science <laughs> um, I, I went into uh, Davis to take two years later and yeah here we are so it did change once like maybe when you were at Davis that the idea was uh, I'm gonna fo- and and within that even focused within uh, international relations were you already thinking about like which you know sort of subfields of political science you were wanted to focus absolutely on? Mm-hmm. absolutely I mean so by the time I took a few classes in, um, you know, in Las Positas, again, sort of following my grandfather's, trying to capture his essence, I decided, well, I'm going to maybe do something in international law. Um, because although I could argue my way out of anything, which is why even growing up, everyone was always like, she's going to be a lawyer, isn't she? Um but actually, by the time I was in community college, I was like, yeah, maybe I want to do international law and then I can travel, I can do fun stuff. And, you know, you learn about, I don't know, NGOs, that sort of thing. Um, and then when I went to Davis, so in Davis, IR was um, a distinct degree from political science. But I was missing a prerequisite from Las Positas because Las Positas didn't have it in order to get directly into the IR program. So I just went with political science because I had the option of switching afterwards. But then by coming in through political science, even though there were lots of overlaps with the IR, which I was just going to do until I can switch into IR, you also had the option of following a track within political science that was more political theory. So I decided I was going to do that. But within the IR track, you had within the IR degree, there were different tracks as well. And I was really miffed by the fact that there weren't a lot of women in international security. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, so I was like one of seven women out of a class of like 150 in international uh, security in the IR track, which was fun because I, you know, I had friends in that as well um yeah we still talk about that uh, i think i'm the only one of my group of women friends who stayed in academia and who kept doing ir stuff <laughs> i don't know what that says about our discipline <laughs> so i 
yeah, so I, I kept doing that. I did, you know, switch on paper to IR, but um, I technically minored in political science, although it was more political, the political theory dimension of it. And I took enough credits to minor in history as well, but for some reason they're like, yeah, that's too much or something. So I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, and my focus was more European history in that, in that track um, as well. Um, Western, to be specific, Western European history, because there was a difference of history for people who were interested in uh, Eastern and Central Eastern Europe. So um, at what point then uh, did you say, I, I, I want to keep going. I, I want to go on to, to a master's uh, and, or, or were you still going to kind of just fit, kind of figure it out? Like I'll, I'll go on to a master's and then, you know, we'll take it one step at a time. And then, and then within that, like how, um, how did you decide? I mean, it's a storied uh, uh, university and, and um, program uh, at mm. the, uh, at the university of Cape town, but what, yeah. Um, you know, what, how, 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 when did that come into the decision-making process uh, as well? <laughs> Gosh, there, there are lots of things that helped with that particular decision. So on the academic side, I realized that, you know, so I now had what would be considered a good pre-law, a, a good pre-law degree, but I did not know that I would be as excited being a lawyer or sort of having the demands that of, of uh, US law schools thrown on me. Again, keeping in mind at this point that I'm still an international uh, student. Um, and at the time that I finished, actually a lot of the US did not have a lot of master's programs that were distinguished from people who just wanted to do masters, didn't want to do like a master's and PhD. Now it's commonplace. But when I was finishing, it was like, are you going to just do the PhD? And I kind of was like, well, I don't know yet. And I don't even know if I still don't want to do law, but I really like this IR gig. So, you know, what are my options here? Uh, and I didn't want to do like a public policy one where, which was where actually there were quite a few degree programs that were just masters in public policy. If you were going to work on, uh, what's that street in DC where all the lobbyists are? Is it J street? Um, J street. yeah, like you, yeah, if you're, if you're going to do yeah. that, then you can, you, you, you could sort yourself out, so to speak. Uh, I thought about, you know, ooh, maybe Georgetown or one of those, but then, um, I, well, Americans elected George Bush for a second time. Right, 2004, uh, right? Yep, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it changed a lot of things in a lot of people's lives. And I could not believe it. Um, I honestly could not believe it just because of the experiences people already had with him. Um, and... I at this and people, point, I, I, I'm sorry, but people <laughs> forget. Okay. I mean, because we've had so many momentous elections since then in the United States, at least, people forget mm -hmm. how charged and you know, sort of animated and 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 nerve wracking and and um and everything that the early the early to mid 2000s were during the war on terror and torture and and um, you know, everything that was going to the Iraq war and so and. 
And the idea was, at least in 2000, there was a screw up, right? It was kind of a, a yeah. glitch in the system. Mm. And, you know, Gore probably won, but, you know, it'll like the American people will have a chance to, um, to you know, to sort of reject uh, Bushism or whatever and neoconservatism. Mm. And then they didn't. And I've heard this from a lot of people. It's like at least um, both both within the United States and then others looking in, you know, towards the United States. It's like now we can't just blame it on a glitch. This is this is the American people, yeah. right? That that did that. So Absolutely. sorry, I, I didn't mean to intervene. Yeah. No, no. I mean, it's exactly as you said because I, you know, so of course I had a choice. That there were some people who didn't have a choice. And the thing, you know, I can still remember on the night of the election where I had friends who could agree that, oh, what happened in 2000 wasn't great. What was happening domestically, you were, you know, the edge of the Clinton years were being lost, not to say that, you know, in hindsight, they were in any way, shape or form perfect. But there was a discussion around, uh, for me, I would say, you know, this might not have been a deciding factor for anybody else, but, there's a lot of discussion amongst my circle of friends around abortion about whether you could vote for people who were who think, well, actually, it's a woman's right to choose. And I remember having friends who were really conflicted about this. And I did not understand how you could be conflicted and how that would be the deciding choice as to whether you were going to vote for this person who was basically by some standards, a war criminal. Um, and it just made me realize that even my sort of, I mean, Davis is Davis. It's a very, yeah, we got, we had lots of cows, but it's a very liberal college town. Um, and to be having those sort of conversations, even amongst people who are, I, mean, I understand some of their social conservatism, I just, I could not deal with it. Um, and I think it was also one of the first times that I, you know, cried, ugly cried in public because we were watching the election results come in. Um, and so, you know, I was like, so what do I want to do? I've come to the UK and that was an option because I've been thinking of, you know, wanting to check out Scotland again because, you know, I want to know what this place of birth felt like. But I was also moved to come back to a Africa in quotes because you know <laughs> it's a massive continent of <laughs> many many countries so you know choosing one did not would not suggest that I was having a full experience of what the continent was like but it was also an opportunity for me to know my continent because up until then I think I'd only ever been to uh you know Kotonu outside uh, a city outside of Nigeria that was the only place I'd been to otherwise I was more used to uh, the southwestern part of Nigeria. And South Africa seemed to be a good option because it gave me an opportunity to, at least if, if you're looking at those horrible ranking tables, I could justify to my parents why I wanted to come back uh, by going to the best university on the continent. Now, my parents were often quite, they really cared about our education. But I have to say um, that they really... Um, they had faith in our judgment, so to speak, right? Like for me and my siblings. So when I said, yeah, you know, I actually don't want to go to the LSE, at least not right now. I want to go to Cape Town. I want to do learn about politics on, you know, on our continent. Um, I want to learn about the history of this place where the only thing that, you know, when I was growing up, 
I remember the conversations about South Africa that we had in my house. You know, we had this, my dad had this um, pullover jumper that um, said apartheid is wrong. And every single person in my family has won that jumper. Like, so at some point I wore it, my sister wore it. Um, I grew up with, you know, when I would ask, you know, why is the, the Union Bank in Nigeria called the Union Bank? And my parents would tell me about the time when, you know, the Nigerian government threw the British out because they would not um, put sanctions on South Africa because, of, you know. So I wanted to know about this country that was actually very much a part of my life <laughs> um sort of subconsciously because it was you know it was something that i think my my parents um their friends my grandparents thought was really important that you know this sort of settler colonial state how all that fight i mean my grandfather was very much involved in the fight for independence that this is what we end up with that there's still that place in southern africa um, and south africa perhaps much more so for obvious reasons than zimbabwe because you know by 1980 uh, you had uh, robert mugabe so yeah I, I wanted to know about this place and it was supposed to be this different place uh, i wanted to go to a country where um an africa was you know in, in nigeria this is a nigeria is a majority black um country um, the non-white Nigerians in Nigeria were mostly of um, Lebanese descent. And so I was, I was, I had this sort of anthropological, you could say, curiosity. How do you deal with white people who are Africans? Um, and I, I guess I could have asked the same questions about places like Kenya or Namibia, but obviously because of the sort of outsized position that South Africa played in uh, the discourses of my growing up. It seemed to make sense. And again, we had this good university. So I ended up in South Africa to do a master's uh, in IR. So I could go straight into IR this time. And um, learned a lot, learned a lot about the continent. But at the same time, I mean, I think I would probably have gotten more or less the same type of education if I stayed in the US. Uh, so not that evolved at that time. <laughs> well, and had you um while you were in cape town then did you have the uh were you already expecting to go to get your phd or was that something you decided while you were in cape town or did you take a did you take an off year or whatever uh like when at what point did you decide to and, and then eventually go to to edinburgh where uh where you did your your phd yeah so um when i was finishing at davis in my very last uh, semester, I took a class that was on NATO and the EU. Um, and, and that was it. So I'd heard of NATO before and I'd heard of the EU before, but not in intellectual terms. And here was, I was in this class, I was teaching us about sort of regionalism and different types of regionalism. And it wasn't teaching us about the OAU, which is now the African Union. But I grew up with the OAU because my grandfather had been the Nigerian ambassador to the OAU in the 60s. So I understood what regionalism was. Um, I understood ECOWAS. And I didn't really understand. I mean, I, I, I didn't know that that was what this NATO in part is or um, what the EU <laughs> is, uh, which I imagine is actually nowadays is the opposite. That when you think of regionalism, you just think of the EU. So... 
And then in learning about that, I understood that, well, actually, as a policy, the EU had a, an interesting relationship with African countries. And I'm like, what? I'm just learning about this in my last semester. I really, I don't know, in, my, uh, in my last quarter, actually, I really want to learn a bit more about it. So actually, in going to Cape Town, my uh, master's dissertation was on EU. A Europeanization uh, of um, foreign policy, looking at the UK and and Sweden, so uh, relatively small states, although how you define small, I guess um, the UK doesn't necessarily think of itself as small uh, in the same way that Sweden might think of itself as small. But you know, states that were maybe seen as reluctant to fully integrate in a variety of ways, not having the euro. And I wanted to understand the security dimension. And by the time I started thinking about that topic, I was sure that I wanted to explore this a bit more. I wanted to explore this regionalism. You know, what does it mean a, to, for a regional polity to have a relationship with another collection, um, or with another, in this case, continent? Uh, and how did he go about that relationship? You know, why at that time wasn't the um, EU engaging with the African Union, which at this point had already succeeded uh, the OAU, um, but was kind of also engaging with them. Uh, I didn't have clear questions or anything at the time I was doing my master's, but I knew I wanted to do something in security. Now, the drive towards security is still, now I probably appreciate that that's what I went for, but. It came out of a slight rebellion, I must say, that I just, I just did not understand how even the things that we might consider to be hard security, the ways in which it affected uh, those people who are, um, you know, historically excluded uh, in the, you know, global ordering, but also um, in how we understood IR. Um, why? We were okay in a way with the way things were um, and not really seen as contributing to this specific area. When it comes to international development, Africa features. When it comes to economics, you know, Africa features. Not, not, usually not in a good way, right? Uh, and, and yeah, in security where I, you know, I had experienced, you know, ECOMOG in West Africa having a very significant role. Uh, not to say they did anything well, but they had a role uh, that wasn't really being acknowledged by the intellectual discourses at my university or even SADAC in, in, in Southern Africa. Um, I wanted to do something on security. So it's about how do you combine that? And I also like the idea of like, you know, all of the literature at the time I was starting my PhD was like, you want to do security? The EU is not the thing to be looking at. Uh, so I was like, yeah, I'm just going to see how it all falls together and I'll do something on security. And at this point, I was like, OK, I'm kind of ready to leave South Africa as well. I think it was also apparent to me that, you know, my real issue is I like to travel and I like to meet different people and I like to live in different places. And perhaps this was finally the time to reacquaint myself with the UK. I was sure at this point that I did not definitely, despite what my, I'm sure my dad hoped, that I did not want to go to the LSE. Um, that actually, despite the fact that my family was based in London, I did not want to go, I didn't want to be in England, because again, a bit of rebellion, like go to the places where people don't expect you to go. 
So actually, I mostly applied to Wales, Northern Ireland, and Scotland. <laughs> so I applied to Queens in Belfast and Ulster. I applied to Aberystwyth, uh, and I applied to um, Edinburgh. And in the end, looking at my dad's picture books, we kind of liked Edinburgh a lot. And I was like, yay, Scotland, because I want to get to Scotland. Um, and it is probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. As you can see, I ended up back here. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I got there. So did you, um, <laughs> that's wonderful. And it sounded like you did have options, like you could have decided to either go to Aber or, um, so, uh, so was there someone at Edinburgh that you had identified to uh, as your supervisor yet, or was that a decision that was only made after you kind of got there? Or, yeah. yeah. I mean, perhaps this also speaks to sort of my, I'm just going to follow my bliss uh, kind of attitude that I had to my education. You know, nowadays, when I'm talking to PhD students, I say to them, yes, really think about who it is that you want to work with. Whereas I'm just like, I'm just going to apply to schools and see what comes of it. Uh, when that doesn't mean that I just sort of like winged it, because when it came time to like, OK, so you're not really thinking about it. When I applied to ABBA, I emailed um, Professor Rita Abramson. Uh, unfortunately for me, she was leaving. Like she was literally just leaving Aberystwyth. They, they were heading uh, to Canada, right? Yeah, exactly. Canada. Uh, but, you know, she was so lovely. And I was like, oh, damn. I never thought about Canada as an option, but I really wanted to be in the UK. So I'll just apply and maybe they'll find something else. And what happened was Aberystwyth was like, oh, you know, this, this is the person that you want to work with if you're doing something on a security or something in Africa. And we don't actually have anybody else like her. So um, we can't accept you. And I was like, this is so sad because this is like the oldest IR department. And they came back to me and they said, actually, we can just defer you for a year because, you know, we think this is something that we can work with. And I was like, okay. But I'd already applied to uh, Queens and... Um, and, and Edinburgh at this point. And I hadn't identified anybody at Queens at that point. I mean, I feel like there were a few names swirling in my head, uh, but I hadn't really identified anyone. In Edinburgh, <laughs> the other person I identified was Annika Bergman Rosamund, who was also leaving. <laughs> it's just like, what is this curse <laughs> of all the people that I really like um, who have who done really good work? who are also leaving. So again, I just sort of put in my application, I was like, well, you know, they'll probably say no as well since Annika Bergman was always leaving. But luckily, um, uh, the late uh, John Peterson and um, Sarah Rich Dorman were willing to uh, supervise me uh, then because it was a sort of good combination of EU, EU foreign policy, uh, external relations, and then sort of um, Africa and, African regionalism so you know Edinburgh was a good home but you know people asked me afterwards like oh so you know were you going to go to the uh, Center for African Studies and I was like no I was very much in the political uh, sort of politics and IR department. Did you um, while you were at, at Edinburgh then were you um, so it does sound like you had made the decision by then that you were going to go into at least some kind of uh, uh, academic track um, after you got your PhD. 
Uh, although I, my guess is some policy or consulting options were still, you know, there uh, if, if you wanted them. But um, were you also getting academically professionalized? Were you attending conferences? Were you attending BISA or ISA? Or um, was that something that, that uh, you kind of figured out after you got there? Yes, I mean, definitely figured it out after I got there. I mean, the one thing that I'm pretty sure, um, at least when I was doing my PhD, and I think, you know, to a certain extent, it is the same for a lot of people of color in the academy. And when you're a woman of color, it is even more, um, I think it, it can be even be more dicey because there's this hidden curriculum that if you don't have a sponsor, you don't really know anything about it. So how did I learn that, you know, it's some it's useful for you to go to um, academic conferences. Um, a professor at uh, Dalhousie in uh, Canada, Professor Finn Lawson, he put out a call, as I guess, I think it was part of a Jean Monnet project he was working on and it was sort of the EU actiness and they were quite interested in Africa. And uh, at that point, I think the only people who were working on sort of EU Africa relations that I really knew about were um, uh, Professor Mauricio Caboni, who's still, I would say, considered the leading authority on sort of EU Africa relations. And um, but they were interested in the security dimension, which was something that I was doing. Um, and again, the only people who was sort of doing that very niche area was um, a professor in a at Roskilde University. I think that's where he is. Yes. Um, so not a lot of us. And they wanted some early career researchers, including PhDs. So I put an application for it. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, this was, you know, I started my PhD in the autumn of 2007. And uh, this conference was happening in like May 2008. Yeah. And so I was like, sure, I'll just put in, probably say no. Uh, but I got in and, you know, they paid for everything and I never been to Canada before then. And, you know, I never say no to new places. So I wrote a paper that was basically framing what I wanted to do my PhD. And it was through that that I also understood that PhD students were kind of expected to publish. So I published this book chapter. Um, for me back then it was like, oh, this is such a massive opportunity. I didn't, because nobody was telling us that this was supposed to be a requirement. So I went to this, but this was more or less a very specialized workshop. So I hadn't, I didn't know anything about professional associations at this point. It wasn't until September, 2008, when Edinburgh was hosting the uh, UASIS annual conference. And I was one of the student workers uh, that was recruited that I met um, the late Luke Forster, who was the uh, director of UASIS and, you know, being sort of behind the curtain sort of thing, you know, I ended up hanging out with him and he told me about what academics do really, even though he wasn't an academic himself. And I was like, oh, that's why we have all of these people. This is what conferences are about. And yeah, I joined my first professional association then, which was uh, UASIS. Um, and started learning about publishing by being in the sort of graduate, uh, it's now called the Graduate Forum. Um, 
yeah, I think that's how I really came into. So there are these other things, but I had to learn a lot of it myself. So, you know, nowadays when I have PhD students who are going for conferences, you know, they might talk to me about it. When I was doing my PhD, that was my thing. Like, you know, I might speak to my, I might tell my supervisor about it so that he doesn't think that I've just like, you know, died or vanished off the face of the earth. But like, there wasn't really sort of like, oh, do you want me to read your paper before you go or anything like that? So I had to make my own networks myself. Um, and luckily I sort of did that together with, you know, my cohort, you know, my, my uh, one of my best memories still from a PhD <laughs> is when we went to the sort of um, the ECPR student conference and it was in Barcelona and uh, it was just a bunch of us. And I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, it was, all intellectual we did present our papers but <laughs> but it was an experience that i will never forget it. and it was still one of my best of academic experiences ever which might tell you again why i'm super excited about um isa despite not liking crowds that much um so you know through those through those mostly chance encounters and just being on the lookout, um, I started looking for opportunities more like that. I would say, you know, Edinburgh had a good, when you knew what to look for, uh, they had um, a platform for thinking about transferable skills. Um, so, you know, I took a lot of extracurricular co courses like uh, project management or stuff like that, you know, media training and, uh, in addition to the other stuff like you know being a better tutor being a better teacher and stuff like that so yeah but i had to learn a lot by myself so um you finished your your phd in um 2011 and so this is also the period of time uh, i'm just thinking at the sort of superstructural level and how this is matching up or not <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe opportunities in, in the academic market. Uh, this is, uh, you know, when austerity is starting to um, really descend upon, uh, it's not like it ever went uh, into the background, <laughs> but uh, but it's definitely starting to descend uh, across Europe and, and uh, in, in the UK. Um, I, I don't, I can't quite remember the direct effect it had on the British Academy, but this is a period of time, at least in the British Academy, where I don't remember a lot of jobs being uh, necessarily available. And in fact, it, there was a little bit of an exodus uh, that it obviously had started earlier, but of uh, British academics that were British based academics, excuse me, that were um, going to like Australia and Canada and elsewhere. So it's just a long, that's a long wind up to ask you what was the academic market like when you were finishing up your PhD? Uh, were you on the academic market? Um, yeah, kind of how did you maneuver all that? Um, so when when I think of the academic academic market, it's not in the same way I think that people think of it now, where you know they think of it as this sort of some sort of structure in of itself. Like you know, it kind of has its own life. For me, it was just I had to find a job because you know my parents really scraped together to pay my international student tuition, but I had taken like three jobs to sort out my living expenses while doing the PhD. So, uh, you know, I had to take okay, out some so loans I, I'm on sorry. my- Okay, yeah, so 
I, I didn't ask that then. So <laughs> did did you at least have some funding at Edinburgh or no? You were all okay. No. All right. Yeah. No. Yeah. So, so what job what I mean, jobs did you have when, when you were <laughs> well, okay, so I had the um, uh tutoring, like normal tutoring. Uh and and I think in my final year I was senior tutor, so that you know, I was organized in some of the other tutors um, that brought in a, a bit of extra money. The other job I had was I worked in like a, it was like a public policy firm where they basically put on um, events of public policy interest and uh, people in the public sector would like pay to go to this events. But I kind of worked like, so basically I worked the conferences. Uh, part of my job was like, you know, passing out mics, uh, directing people to where they get food and stuff like that. Um, so that's what I would do on event days. On non-event days, I was basically in the office stuffing envelopes using this massive machine. Uh, uh, and now I laugh about it, but the thing about using stuffing envelopes and using those machines is you get a lot of paper cuts. So I used to bleed a lot onto the white envelopes, which was always fun. And then uh, some of the time I also did some cleaning, sort of some house cleaning. Um, and um, I mean, all of these jobs were, with the exception of say, maybe the tutoring. And uh, I could only do them when I wasn't say doing field work, for example. So, you know, when I had to go to Brussels or when I had to go to Addis, I had to stop those things, but I had to make this money in order to go to those places. Um, and so by the time I submitted my PhD in October 2010, uh, you know, the, the same day that over 100 scripts came in for me to mark. So um, I did have my 16 hours of sleep and then I went back to marking because I was senior tutor. But I had to get on the ball immediately. Like I'd done that. Like I was just applying left, right and center. I was applying for academic jobs because I think at this point I really knew that I wanted to be an academic, that I wanted to teach and I wanted to keep doing research. Um, but I was also open, you know, I was happy to apply to Amnesty, you know, places that obviously aligned with my values, um, uh, places where I could use my skills, but anywhere really. And I applied, I guess, you know, by the time I formally graduated in uh, July 20, 2011, I had applied for perhaps 60, 70 jobs. Um, of those, I think I got three interviews in total. Um, uh, and I got one interview. Uh, the one that I didn't even remember that I'd applied for. And that was the job I I got the, my one interview that I no not it wasn't no it wasn't the only interview but you know the one that I'd forgotten that I applied for and I also got an interview was the one that I ended up doing which was the job at Warwick and of course you know it was a very unique position in the sense that you know it was a postdoc but a postdoc on an existing project so it wasn't like I had to formulate my own project because while I was in Edinburgh I also applied to um, back then the ESRC one-year postdocs, which I didn't get. Um, and and so, you know, I was, as I said, I was sort of applying to everything. Uh, but I got this job in um, 
at Warwick, which just really aligned with my research interests. Like, you know, this was a big project that was looking at issues of regionalism, multilateralism. They wanted someone who could do stuff in Europe, in Africa. And it really introduced me to those people who the closest I'd come to them was sort of citing their work in my PhD. And all of a sudden I get this opportunity to really work, um, to work with them. And, you know, Warwick has this fantastic center, you know, center for, um, uh, study for regionalization and globalization. And, you know, where else has such a unique center? Really? <laughs> yeah. And it was fabulous because this was a space where like my research, uh, you know, my own research was supported as much as the, uh, um, the research that they were expecting me to do for the project, opportunities for me to like get my, go into conference supported. Uh, Sean Breslin was my um, direct, um, line manager who was just absolutely wondrous. Um, but I also had, I mean, it's funny because when I think back at it, I don't think I loved my time at Warwick so much because of the institutional architecture back then. But the people that I got to engage with were like, you know, Nicola Pratt, uh, Shirin Rye, um, Charlotte Heath Kelly, I mean, I would never have met these people if I hadn't been um, at Warwick. Uh, people of you know different research interests, uh, but just really awesome people like you know Nick Von Williams, uh, just so Vicky Squire. I, you know, yeah, I can give you a massively long list. Really big department, but but, but, but also. <laughs> But also folks that are approaching security uh, in a lot of different angles, right? It's not like, you know, security has to be very yeah. focused. Yeah. You know, I heard about ontological security because Chris Barney was in my department. I mean, it was, That's right. I, I'm, I'm just not, I, I'm not going to say, because I get, I'll get emotional about like, you know, when I, I remember how much I miss um, not seeing these people in the everyday, you know, this, this, this important people who really, were fabulous and you know they weren't just great um academics they were kind of cool to have coffee with and you know um have tea with go to the pub <laughs> when we could uh well, surprisingly were you living in, were, were you living in coventry or lemington or where where in lemington. area you were in Lemington, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. I like, yes, I know. I know. It was always this thing of like, if my Coventry, my Coventry friends lived in Earlston, which you know, if I'd known about Earlston when I moved um, to you know that region, I might have lived there. Because if I told you my story of my first experiences with Warwick, so you know, I got this interview. I'm in Edinburgh. Um, I love Scotland so much. I usually back then I used to get help palpitations every time we went past after we moved past Newcastle it was like oh my god I'm going to the big city of you know of the unknowns because usually I just went to London right so you know this was opportunity for me to go outside of London I'm like Coventry like okay I know where it is on the map but I don't even know where this place is and you know I have to say coming from Edinburgh which is just like you know one of the most gorgeous places on the planet Let's just say Coventry was a bit of a shock when you came into the train station. <laughs> yeah, I have actually had other interviews on this podcast where I laugh uh, way too much when Coventry is brought up. 
I don't have a good <laughs> poker face, but I know exactly I know. what you're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this was a situation where when I left the train, I came out of the train station and I brought out my phone and I called my friend Alan and I was like, I don't think, I don't think I can go for this interview. Like, I don't know. And she's like, what? You got job interview at a good university. Like, just, you know, just go, like, you know, get your act together. And was and then, the weather at least, was the weather at least tolerable? I mean, or was, was it? It was fine. Like, it was, you know, mild. It wasn't bad. Okay, you know, okay. It was, it was a good day. But then, of course, I then, you know, took the bus onto the Warwick campus. And I was like, oh, this is a lovely, leafy area. You know, they have the conference universe, the conference hotels where uh, you could stay in, which was like, oh, so this is like a thing. I do not even know this is an option. And so that particular area is great. But then, of course, everybody tells you nobody actually, except the very wealthy people who can live in the massive houses around the actual university, Nobody actually lives around the university. Like, you know, these are the different um, other uh, places that people really live. But again, keeping in mind, I never actually saw Earlston because I, th I genuinely think that that would have been um, an option for me, suddenly close to the, to the station. Um, but that said, um, given that I saw Leamington when I saw it, it would still have been probably the strongest contender. You know, it had the, it had the bath vibe going for for it, um, and you know, as I told you, I loved literature in school. We read a crap load of Jane Austen, <laughs> so 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 I was like, yeah, I can I can see myself here in a weird kind of way, um, and I, I didn't mind it so much. Uh, and of course, over time, then I got to know other places like Birmingham, and I was like. Oh, so there could be other cities in the UK that are not London. And I really like Birmingham and knowing that it was that close. And actually, we weren't that far from other places like, say, Oxford, for example. Uh, weird place, for sure. But, you know, it wasn't too far. <laughs> so, so it was, you know, we were located quite nicely. There were direct trains from Leamington to uh, Manchester. Um, so it was not... It was not a bad place to be if you're going to uh, be in um, in England. But yes, I, I think there was that shock of what Coventry was. But again, the, <laughs> in the end, it was fine. Um, well, and, apologies and, and to people from Coventry. <laughs> you know, um, but it, it also was a, a an incredibly um, productive and dynamic time, at least if, as I'm looking at it on paper, looking at your CV, because the project that you were on, um, that you were there uh, for, it, it looks to me, at least in terms of matching up titles, that developed in the, into your 2014 edited or co-edited volume um, on global reordering. And then also, it sounds to me like they still allowed, or allowed, I shouldn't, it sounds like too over, overbearing, but um, you were still um, free enough to be able to pursue developing your, your, uh, your, your first book, your, your book on um, uncharting uh, transformation through security. It sounds like, right? You were able to develop that while you were um, also working on the project. Uh, and then I'm, yeah. I'm just thinking about like the dynamic environment that you're in, at least intellectually, right? Um, yeah. With some of the other people that are approaching security. So it, it does sound like it was a pretty uh, productive time for you uh, while you were there. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Like, so um, if, if I could choose a time in my academic career so far that 
I would want to replicate in terms of time and uh, the sort of dynamics that you're describing. It would have been my time at Warwick because you had this situation where you had a, a university that was, a, if you value those things, highly ranked. I perhaps not so much, but the thing that does come with being highly ranked is that you are a relatively well-resourced university. And so from that perspective, you know, having a university that, you know, I didn't have to cry too much to get my conferences funded. Um, I had a teaching load that was lovely and manageable. I could teach stuff that was directly related to my research interests. Um, I got the opportunity already to teach at master's level. I could supervise master's and, and undergraduate students. I also had enough admin duties that were, um, that, I guess were also growth opportunities, you know, and 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 worked well again with the sort of ethics that I wanted to espouse. I, you know, I was the postdoc rep in the broader configuration, so I was like really fighting for more recognition for postdocs uh, within sort of the uh, staff, but also men engagement with other early career researchers. So in that sense, it was it was fan fantastic, and I I mean I, I I like to think I didn't take it for granted, and I, I like to think I worked very hard, which is why you know I was able to get more for the book, uh, for the monograph, and then uh, subsequently the edited um, the the edited collection. And I mean so, something you might not know is that you know my first um, the, the monograph was published in a series where the series editor was Stuart Croft. <laughs> um, and yeah, again, if you sort of think about critical security people who you've only like ever cited and you're just like, whoa. And now when I think about them, like, oh my gosh, he's now the sort of vice chancellor of this university. And of course, the second, you know, my first edited collection was uh, published by um also by Paul Grave, whose series editor was uh Tim Shaw, who again I only met in the context of uh being in Warwick. So in that sense, you know, again in hindsight, um I would say Warwick gave me a lot that I probably uh, you know I probably did not um and mm, I probably did not appreciate as much because uh I allowed the frustrations to outweigh some of the good stuff um and now you know again with hindsight and being more or being wiser <laughs> uh you can sort of look at it with a sanguine um uh reflection and think well you know this is this was also a, a passage so yes I'm, I'm i'm really happy with that with that time and and certainly that experience uh primed me well i, I would say for where i am a uh, where i am today uh, moving on to kent and then you know subsequently back here how did so the um the job you landed at kent uh then in 2013 the lecture position uh, I, this is a period of time when your book has either been published or it's almost about to be published. Uh, so it sounds like you went, you were probably uh, dipping your toes back into the market uh, a little bit. Um, but then you you got the job at Kent. Was uh, th did you have other job opportunities as well, or was there um, was there a process where you had to decide between a couple of options? Or yeah, well, I, I remember this time very clearly because so you know. Part of my frustration actually at that time with Warwick was that um, 
I felt like I was working really hard and for me the payout for that would be to get a permanent job and that wasn't necessarily forthcoming um and I was really frustrated about that even though you know I sort of to my mind I did everything I was asked to do um but I wasn't the only one going through this you know this was a period of time where a I was a postdoc there uh Linda O'Hell was a um, teaching fellow John Nunez was also postdoc there so I had fellow travelers and that made it much better that we were all applying for these jobs and and I think by the time I got the Kent job, I had applied for well over 100 jobs. Um, I still, for to keep me humble, I still keep the folder um, of those jobs. Uh, but, you know, at this time, of course, I was really focusing on academic jobs, but I wasn't just looking at academic jobs, but it was mostly academic jobs. I also knew that, um, I kind of knew at this point that I more or less wanted to stay in the UK. Um, so I wasn't really so fussed about applying for jobs in the US, although I was looking at whether like postdoc opportunities came up where I could sort of do my own research. And then maybe once I've sort of really found my fit, maybe I would um, then transition into a sort of academic job. So by, you know, wh when I got the, <laughs> the job uh, in 2013, you're right, like my book wasn't out yet, but it had already um gone to sort of review and then sort of uh, was in press as they say um i just uh i had my article out we already had the contract for the edited uh collection and i was already thinking of the next um sort of projects um uh, but i knew that you know i really needed a job because you know the other thing uh that i haven't mentioned so far although uh, <laughs> of course who who've implied is when uh when you're an immigrant not having certain things in place you you don't have that you don't have the same sort of options that i didn't have the same options that british people had like i had to not only if i wanted to stay in the uk i had to get a job that where i earned a certain amount so even if i wanted to work for like a sort of local ngo if i did not meet the salary threshold that the sort of casserole hostile environment immigration systems that I had to have, then, you know, I might as well just leave. And I'd already built a life here at this point because I'd spent, what, four years of the uh, PhD and then an extra two years of the postdoc. Six years is a, was a longer period of time than I had spent um, at this point outside of the US where I spent five years and then uh, suddenly outside of South Africa. So, and of course I was matured here. I was already thinking about putting roots in ways that I probably was not ready to do when I was 21. So I, I really did want to stay. Um, and that meant, you know, I had to find a job. Um, and, and, and I was also lucky because at this time, and that's the thing, you know, I could get an academic job is, it's hard work. Yes, I don't, I'm not discounting that people work hard. But I was not unique in the hard work that I was putting into things. Lots of people were working just as hard. You know, I used to take the bus uh, most days with Joao because he also lived in Leamington. Damn, he was working hard. Um, you know, so I, there was nothing, you know, I would even say he was working way harder than me at this point. So I don't think there was anything specifically unique about, you know, hard work at this point. A lot of it also sort of came to luck, timing, you know, is there a job where 
uh, my job that I got at Kent was a lecturer in international security. And it just happened that they did want someone who could do EU security, right? N not just um, migration security or like post-structuralist approaches or so, you know, so like th those things just happen to have aligned. And of course, again, I did have the training that I, I got as a postdoc at Warwick as well. So I was, I was very lucky. And I was also lucky because at Kent, um, I could also make the claim of contributing to a, a sort of research agenda that they had. Uh, so, you know, as I said, the, the luck really, really, really mattered. Uh, and my time at Kent was also important because there was an opportunity to work with someone who'd become my mentor, Richard Whitman, who's, um, he was my external for my PhD. And, you know, basically I just stopped him and uh, we ended up working in the same place. I'm just kidding. Uh, I did not stalk him. <laughs> but, you know, we ended up like collaborating on a few things, like we'd written a sort of chapter together um, and now we're co-editors in this journal and he just happened to have been at Kent. Um, so a lot of things had to come together, which was mostly the universe more than um, any special uh, thing. I mean, the special things are just as important, but. There's so many other special people out there that, you know, you cannot discount the sort of universe dimension. So um, this is usually when we transition to some of the scholarly uh, things, but I did have one request from a, a, yeah. a, a, a past guest. Uh, it's almost like we're on a radio show on it. Oh, uh, Dr. Hostrup, we have, we have a, a request uh, from Orion. Um, so Yelena Subodic said, I have to ask you about, you apparently either lived or worked in Serbia for a while. Is this right? Or you, you or you visited there or something? Is that right? Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah. But I'm supposed to ask you about that uh, at the, uh, at the request of uh, Professor Subodic. So. Okay. Uh, you know, I visited because I was uh, invited by, I think someone that a, Yelena knows a Philip Aegis, uh, another ontological uh, yep, person, Mike, yeah. I guess. Yep. Yes. Um, and I owe him something. So, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, and yeah, I think he's known Philip for a few years, uh, obviously in the sort of European security circles. And he invited me um, to do this thing uh, at his university. And I was only in, um, in Serbia uh, for a few days. But it was my first time there in, you know, in a way it was kind of representative of the region, which is very silly because countries are very different in, in a lot of ways. But that's kind of how I was thinking about it. And I was there for a few days. I actually really enjoyed it. But I suspect, you know, that's what tends to happen when you visit a place, when people expect you to say something bad. And I'm like, no, I really enjoyed it. Like, you know, food was awesome. Things were cheap. Uh, <laughs> and it was an opportunity for me to see my friend Mariana who we'd done our masters together in in Cape Town and I had not seen her in so many years and I just messaged her on Facebook and I said you know I'm going to come to your country randomly for a few days and we should go and eat and you know just hang out just really catch up on our lives and sort of see where we are uh, because, you know, she's a fantastic, fantastic scholar who works outside of academia. Um, and, you know, it was from her that I learned about uh, 
the former Yugoslavia, the war, uh, and things like that in a way that I, I don't think I would have really um, understood um, beyond the sort of standard box and uh, US. This thing happened, let's move on. Um, so those three days were actually, for me, quite magical. I really like the city. Um, I did hear about a lot of the frustrations around sort of the reactionary right-wing politics that seems to be a wave across Europe, you know, I can't say anything because it's the same with my country, the UK. Yeah, yeah um, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't have to go to Europe to, to experience <laughs> that. <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, you know, we, we talked about this sort of political uh, frustrations, but I I really liked it. And when there was a sort of ISA um, sort of conference over there, I, you know, I... I can't say I regretted not going because it was just that I could not go. You know, I there was no support for me to go, and there was so much else already going on. But that would have, you know, if uh, Yelena thinks about organizing another conference and you know wants someone on her committee <laughs> that would make them make me go. I, I mean, I'm not gonna say no. <laughs> I'm just putting it out there, you know. <laughs> so we've answered the request with another request, uh, so to speak. That's great. Well, how do you approach writing? Um, where do you do your writing? Uh, when do you do your writing? Um, do you have like a, a sort of routine that you uh, engage in um, or has it changed over the years? Gosh, you're probably going to regret um, asking me this question because <laughs> on, on, unfortunately for you, I'm not um, in the, when I was a PhD student, I was, I never took, I'm not a morning person, so I wasn't regimented about my writing, but I did spend many hours, like uh, specific hours on writing where it was like, you know, spending six hours stretch on just writing today. And if that six hour stretch took me to 2 a.m., then yeah, that's fine. Or it could be 12 hours where, you know, I kind of started my day at like one. So I had my teaching in the morning, started my day at about one, had lunch, hung out with people, and then really started about 3.30, uh, you know, had a bit of a break for dinner and then kept going again. Um, so, you know, that, but then back then when I used to think, oh, I didn't have that much time. It was actually all the time in the world. Uh, by the time I went to Warwick, you know, it was like, you know, I took the bus at about uh, just before seven, went into the office and I did what I had to do. And then I was back on the bus if we weren't, you know, hanging out. Um, I was back on the bus, you know, by six, 6.30, unless I went to the gym or something. Uh, and then I was there super late and then had to queue for the bus and all of that. Oh, fun times. Um, and then when I went to Kent, where I thought, oh, now that you have a permanent job, you can get more time because you're not going to keep freaking out about not having a job. Eh, no, 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 no. That's not what happened. And what happened then was, you know, I would set myself um, projects of things that I had to complete. And it was basically completed any way possible. I would say in the early years when I was at Kent, I could carve out like three hours where I was just doing a lot of reading, making my notes. And then, you know, three days from then find another four hours where I was sitting down to write, going over it and using that in my writing. Over the years, that has changed. Like I've gone against every possible good advice that has to do with writing, even though I know that is good advice. 
uh, you know, do it in the morning. Nah, I'm still not a morning person. Don't check your emails uh, before you do any writes. Eh, still check my emails. Uh, so what has tended to happen, and particularly when I've had, you know, what, I've, what has happened is I've had growing responsibilities, is I've then had less and less, less time of having like time for concentrated writing. So this last week, I've been doing quite a bit of writing and I'm sort of doing this project. And a lot of that writing is happening uh, between, usually between now and 3 a.m. Now, I can only do that because I don't have dependents, because I don't have a small child at home. And my cat has basically given up on me. So, and yeah, <laughs> I can swing that. And um, yeah, my partner is very accommodating, I would say. <laughs> um, but of course, that's not my everyday, right? So this is just this week where I have a really tough deadline. Otherwise, to be honest, it is really difficult to grab time. So what tends to happen is, you know, if there's a, if I'm not teaching, so we've gotten teaching out of the way, we've got the marking out of the way, and then there's a week where I'm just doing other things, what tends to happen is I spend like three hours doing sort of, what are my literature searches? What books do I want around me? Uh, what are the chapters that I want to highlight? Going through abstracts to make sure that, you know, those are the articles that I really want. Sometimes actually going through Twitter, my bookmark on Twitter to sort of look at, you know, what are the new articles that I bookmarked that I wanted to read uh, later? Like right now, I still have Winking at Me in my uh, bookmarks, the new article by Chris Rostell and Nevin Mashanda, which looks really awesome. But I'm like, you know, I need to leave it in my bookmark because it's the only way I'm going to remember to, to read it because I think it's going to be really useful for some work that I'm doing. So, you know, when I get three hours, I might do that. But half of the time, the actual sort of reading to really think, digest before you come to do the work doesn't happen for me anymore. Uh, sometimes it happens that I go on a walk and I um, think through how I want to structure an argument or how I want to say something and then I can sort of record it on my phone so that I can transcribe later. But most of the time, I'm reading, then writing, reading, then writing. And these days, I don't get, in, in a normal working day, I don't get more than a four-hour stretch of time. Although somehow I've managed to ensure via my calendar that in July, for each piece of article that I'm writing, that I get like two full days to do that in the daytime so that I can go to bed like a normal human being. Um, I want to emphasize that having said this, this is not the way to go. This is not good advice. In fact, this is like the worst possible advice. Don't anybody listening to this, please don't do this. Like it is horrible. And all I'm saying to you is that my brain doesn't function in a linear fashion, which is sort of wrecking havoc on um, how I go about doing my work. But luckily I'm so passionate about my work because otherwise I think I would have just sort of given up <laughs> on things. So. <laughs> so it's funny though because I, I actually think your experience is more common uh than, you know we all say we're not the textbook example of good scholarly practices but we i think we all are more the common example of uh, what we do well you mentioned you walk like how do you um how do you sort of uh, 
recharge, uh, decompress, uh, kind of replenish the system, so to speak? Uh, or do you, um, uh, are, are you good about doing that? Are you good about work-life balance, that kind of stuff? Um, you know, <laughs> I'm very bad at work-life balance. And I think, you know, um, I think my partner would be very clear about that. I'm very bad. I always have my, my laptop on somewhere. But I do try to decompress because if you don't, you will wreak havoc on your health. Like you just have to. So as I said this last week, my sleep pattern has been really bad. Um, and that's not a good thing. So I know that, you know, next week I'm going to have to take a lot of time out uh, uh, for myself, uh, you know, sit out in the sun. I have a lovely balcony that whenever it's actually sunny, I, I sit in. Uh, and sometimes, you know, those are just moments in the day where you know it's just 30 minutes also my apple watch is very controlling so it sort of tells me i need to breathe at certain times of day and i'm like well you know i feel like i've been breathing hence the reason i'm still alive but you know that kind of pushes me to really like so i do sort of a one minute meditation sort of thing but i also live in a lovely part of of the world so you know i have a park that is seven minute walk from me the forest is right across the street from me. It's a very small one. I can walk around the um, a very small river that we have if I really wanted to. Um, and sometimes I do that, you know, usually I push it to the weekend, but you know, sometimes I do that because I, when I lived in California, I really developed this love for hiking. And I want to clarify, I said hiking, not camping. Um, yeah so <laughs> I love hiking um and in a way Scotland is kind of perfect for it because it's not as hot as California and if I manage to do it then then you know you can do it here so I love going on walks uh, although I don't like heights that much and again this region is perfect for it because uh, Scotland in general is very hilly, but the central belt, which is where Stirling is based, not as much, at least not compared to the rest of the country. And usually, you know, even narrow pathways are flanked by, you know, trees. So I don't feel like, you know, I'm going to fall or anything like that. So that's sort of thing I, I do. Um, the other thing I like doing is I wasn't really into podcasts before, but now I kind of am. <laughs> Um, I don't, I still am not consistent about, you know, what it is that I listen to. Uh, so if you ask me like, what's your favorite? I'll tell you, I don't have favorites, but I'll tell you all the stuff that I listen to. Um, but audiobooks are like, I love audiobooks. Uh, it's, you know, especially for, for fun, like just, hey, having a good John Le Carré when I'm feeling intellectual um on the on on audible when I don't care about intellectualism it's like you know finding myself a nice uh romantic thriller you know that's kind of my jam really um because you know <laughs> what I'll say again I'm reading novel books uh anyway and I you know I can't keep up with the sort of more academic intellectual books uh, and if I'm going to be honest, it's kind of the reason I only ever say yes to um, judging book prizes because it actually forces me to see what colleagues have published in the last year. And I read this stuff and I'm like, damn, 
we have some colleagues that are working hard um, and the least we can do <laughs> is actually read their work. So I, I'm often saying, okay, sure, I don't mind doing your book prize even though I have so much else to do, but it forces me to do the reading. Um, but otherwise it's like articles, articles, articles. Uh, and I want to get away from that. So Audible, Audible is like my friend, which I know is a bad thing to say because it's an Amazon company and we I'll have all these issues with Amazon, but it works. It works for the decompression. Um, so one of the one of the last things I wanted to ask you about was your your um, you have a lot of I guess what we'd call public engagement uh, activity uh, as well. And so um, where do you kind of fit that in with everything else that you have? Uh, going on or is it one of these things that if something just pops up it's like I gotta uh, you know I, I need to speak to this urgent issue I, I need to write on it I need to be you know I'm happy to be interviewed on it so on and so forth yeah I mean so the public engagement um, has come about because you know in the UK it's become very much a requirement of our jobs these days as part of our research jobs so I'm sure you've heard of the impact agenda and for a very long time like the impact agenda was really like you have to show that you know you've made an impact on journalists or policy processes that there was actually substantive change but the only way to get that is by doing more and more public engagement and, and so there's actually been more um, credit given to just public engagement and um, so that's how I came into it. But that's not why I kind of stay. Like, you know, I think that there is, um, sometimes there's an issue in the news that I want to reflect on. Um, and I'm drawing on, you know, I'm reflecting, drawing on my expertise. So a lot of the collaborative work that I've done with um, people like uh, Jamie Hagen or, uh, Roberta Green, uh, uh, Catherine Wright, where our frustration with the fact that, you know, gender was really absent from discussion around Brexit when it was clearly there, in the same way that it was very absent in the discussions around austerity, where, uh, you know, the European Union might have a very specific vision of the women, peace and security agenda, and we want to sort of highlight why we shouldn't rest on our laurels too much. And of course, a lot of the stuff I've done recently has been more around feminist foreign policy and, you know, sort of a, you could say, critical, <laughs> a friendly critique of the shift towards uh, feminist foreign policy. But of course, a lot of this has come through a collaborative work that I've done with uh, scholars uh, who've given me the opportunity to actually think through some of these issues. So, yeah, in a way, that public scholarship is also to sort of say, I stand on the shoulders of uh, giants and uh, this is uh, an opportunity for people um, to, to pay it forward so that people who don't have access to university libraries uh, can actually access this sort of research. But also, given that it is true that I probably don't go on protest marches as much as I might want to, um, and usually my rants come through Twitter, this for me might also be a more substantive way to get the air of people who have the power to make uh, certain changes, right? So never in my entire life would I have ever thought that I would publish something in foreign policy, this magazine that was founded by they who shall not be named. And um, that, you know, 
an opportunity to um, write something with colleagues that I deeply admire on racism and race and international relations or, you know, thinking through feminist foreign policy, what would that mean after four years of Trump in, in the United States? You know, who can pass that opportunity up? And of course, a lot of these editors and journalists are actually really willing to speak with us. Um, but I also sort of think of it as, you know, I'm part of the Women Also Know Stuff uh, collective uh, board, and we're really wanting to create a space for women in our discipline um, to be, respected and understood for their excellent work and expertise. And part of the ways in which we encourage that they do that, you know, part of putting your name on the databases so that when a journalist wants um, actual good information, uh, um, evidence-based research, that they can come to you uh, and not just, you know, the same old uh, type of people. So in that sense, I also sort of see a public-facing scholarship as the duty uh, for our, our profession. And I, I certainly encourage it of people. It's, but I also say it's something, as you said, it's something that takes time. Uh, because you're having to, you know, I, I could do uh, 1,500 words. I could go towards an article that I'm going to publish, but I end up using it for this public engagement stuff. But it, it, is, it is worth it. Uh, it's, it's not worth it because you get to be in New York Times. I mean, that's kind of a cool perk. But I think it is worth it. It's also worth it to think about the different types of audiences that you can re reach, um, thinking about writing in a different way. Um, because I must say, when when I started my PhD, when I was in, in Cape Town, um, after I sort of done the main coursework for my master's, I was working for the uh, the HSRC, Human Sciences Research Council, which was sort of this sort of parastatal or quango, uh, where we did a lot of social science research around uh, service delivery and the such. And I learned to write in that tone and language and so coming back to academia was actually a bit of an adjustment but doing the public uh, engagement stuff means that actually I have to toggle between those two voices all of the time and I mean as a forever learner I can't say no to learning new things so I suddenly you know th there are lots of reasons why the public engagement stuff matters even though it was something that perhaps wasn't intuitive uh, to us and came about because of this whole impact agenda. I have come to appreciate it a bit more as a way to, you know, when I speak to you, when I um, speak to colleagues at EIR, is it's because I have a lot of respect for our field and I, um, I want to show that respect that I, I want to also, you know, if someone in government is listening right now to say, please stop defunding the social sciences and the humanities. Um, and that, you know, there is value um, to what it is that we're doing. Um, yeah, I sort of I sort of see now as an extension of everything else I do. Well, Dr. Tony Hastrup, thank you so much for being on the Hayseed Scholar podcast. Thank you. It's been such a lovely conversation. Okay, that was my conversation with Dr. Tony Hastrup of the University of Sterling. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, uh, especially in conducting it and having that conversation with Dr. Hastrup. So that was episode 20, in fact, of the Hayseed Scholar podcast. I can't believe that I've done uh, 20 episodes so far, and yet in other ways I can believe it because it's been such an enjoyable 
outlet for me uh, to sit down with some of these brilliant uh, individuals in uh, international relations and political science more broadly and in the academy and getting to chat with them about their life and journey uh, as academics and as individuals. And so thank you all for the very positive feedback you've been sending me uh, over email, over Twitter, uh, sometimes just in conversations. Uh, I'm planning on just keeping going until it is no longer enjoyable uh, and or um, I kind of uh, run out of time. But I've been able to make time as department chair over the last uh, year, two years doing this. And I only have one more year as department chair, uh, actually less than a year now. And so I'm hoping that my availability for these interviews will only increase going forward. In the meantime, I hope you're all well. I hope you're taking care of yourselves. I hope you're ta taking some time away from work um, and enjoying a little bit of uh, this, whatever the summer and or winter, depending on where you are, has to offer. So until next time, cheers.